Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we speak to the venture capital guru who is advising aspiring entrepreneurs on how to raise money. Not just a mouthpiece for the industry, however, he is open to discussion on whether the rise of venture capital is good for the economy as a whole. If I put my selfish venture capital hat on, we are a beneficiary of this. But I think this is not a good thing for the U.S. You have effectively this massive wealth transfer happening. Wealth is coming out of the public markets and going into private market investors. And what that means is for most ordinary investors in the stock market who are investing their retirement accounts or who are trying to invest through pensions and other stuff like that, they have very limited access to this appreciation. That was Scott Cooper, managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital firm. His new book, Secrets of Sandhill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It, is something of a guide for those looking to attract financial backing. He came into the studio to talk about the conditions needed to grow tech companies, the future of VC in a globalised world, and the potential drawbacks of a venture capital-dominated market. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. So tell us about Sandhill Road. I've visited a few times and you expect this kind of amazing financial powerhouse or a dream street for tech, right. as it's called. And you get there and you see some very nice, but very kind of low-rise, low-key buildings. Right. And, uh, you, were, you were disappointed in what you saw when you went out. Well, it wasn't quite what I was expecting yeah. in advance, but there's obviously an extraordinary culture about Sand Hill Road. And yeah. Tell us about it. How does it operate? It's a really interesting phenomenon. You're right. It's not quite as exciting as going to Wall Street in New York or if you like movies to go to Hollywood Boulevard, although some people might prefer not to be on Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard. But yeah, it is a very low-key Two-story buildings, fairly drab. And the most important thing about Sand Hill Road is it's kind of neighbor about a mile down the road, which is Stanford University. I think that's really the important culture that's developed over time. If you think about the network effect that has built in Silicon Valley over a long period of time, so much of that, I think, stems from the fact that Stanford, from its very early days, always had this concept of academicians going back and forth between academia and commercial activity. And Sand Hill Road and the fact that the VCs are there, I think, is purely a reflection of the fact that it's been a major source of innovation that the VCs have benefited from tremendously. And what's it like working so close to a lot of your keenest rivals? Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, it's very convenient in the sense that if entrepreneurs are coming to pitch us... They just go uh, down the road. That's right. You don't have to go very far, although the center of gravity seems to be shifting to San Francisco. So it may be that Sand Hill, in its current construct, if we're having this conversation 20, 30 years from now, may no longer be the same. But... We are kind of frenemy, I guess, is the way to describe how we work with other venture capital firms. So it's nice and convenient that sometimes if you're on the board with them, it's easy to go find them. And other times, if you're competing for deals, most people are staying away. Right. Now, your book is written very much from the perspective of the entrepreneurs, right. what they need to know about the VC industry. So why don't you pitch us? What does the VC industry do for the good of the economy? Sure. Yeah. So look, I think... The VC industry is very important, but I want to be very clear. Look, we should distinguish between what do the VCs do versus what do the entrepreneurs do. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, there's no question. It's the entrepreneurs who are building these businesses. The VCs, if they're doing their job, are obviously, number one, providing a capital source. And it is an important capital source in the sense that there are often not other forms of financing that are available to these companies, just given the high risk and the long illiquidity cycles for this business. I think good VCs also these days are recognizing, though, that money alone is not sufficient. And so the whole reason we built the business that we have at Andreessen Horowitz is to recognize that, look, entrepreneurs have choices. Capital is fairly abundant these days. And so if you're going to win in this business, you have to do something else that adds value. You have to either be a good coach or mentor or board member. You have to either help them in terms of 
finding customers, finding talent, finding other opportunities to grow their business. And what makes Andreessen Horowitz different from the other VC firms? Yeah, so we've really built our differentiation on two primary criteria. Number one is, with the exception of literally one or two of our GPs, all of our GPs have been CEOs or founders, and even the ones who aren't CEOs and founders have been actively involved in the startup community. And so we think that makes us better coach, better mentor, better partner for our companies. And then we've invested in a very big post-investment team. So we have about 100 employees out of a total of 180 who are working with our portfolio companies day in, day out, and helping them identify customer opportunities or helping them hire engineers or executives or talk to the press and other important players in the space. And that's pretty unique when you look at the landscape of the venture capital industry. Now, one of the things that comes through very strongly in your book is the asymmetries in power that there are between the founders and the entrepreneurs and the VC companies that an entrepreneur might only do two or three fundraises in their career with one company at least. Whereas the VCs are clearly seeing these deals every day and have vast experience. And so there is a massive imbalance of power between the two. So what's your recommendation to entrepreneurs? How can they redress this imbalance? You mean, beside from reading the book, what else can they do, right? (laughs) No, look, I think, and this is the reason why I wrote the book, is you're right. There's asymmetric information, and then there is a power issue. Now, I will say over the last 10 years or so, that power dynamic has changed quite meaningfully. So it used to be the case that capital was scarce and the VCs had it. So if you looked at the relative power, the VCs probably had more power for a lot of the early 30, 40 years of the industry. The big thing that's changed over the last 10 years is the abundance of capital started to shift that. And so in many respects, entrepreneurs have more choices today than they ever had before. So I think the power kind of gets resolved by the market forces. The asymmetric information piece, I think, is real, which is a lot of the questions that I got from entrepreneurs had this undertone of how do I avoid getting taken advantage of by VCs who know a lot more about this business than I. And so my hope in the book was to kind of shed a lot of light on that, eliminate that asymmetric information. And I think the most important thing to understand for entrepreneurs is what is the incentive structure under which venture capitalists operate and therefore how does that drive behavior, right? And that's really a lot of what I try to explain in the book is, look, we are there to generate hopefully very high returns for the investors who give us money to invest. And that drives a lot of the behavior you see. It's why we invest in companies that we think have tremendous market opportunities. It's why growth is so critically important for these businesses. And getting those things mismatched, I think, is where things can go awry between those parties. And what's the short version of how, as an entrepreneur, you avoid being exploited? Well, so I think importantly, number one is recognize the fact that you do have choices. And therefore, like any good business transaction, you know, you ought to be talking probably to multiple people and making sure you understand kind of the lay of land. And two is having an open and honest dialogue with your partner around the issues that are relevant to you. So how important are the economic issues to you relative to the governance issues and having enough of a baseline where you can understand the trade-offs that are associated with that. I think sometimes people focus immediately on valuation because obviously it's incredibly exciting to talk about valuation, but it's the interplay of valuation with all the other things in the term sheet that ultimately can be the difference between successful or unsuccessful relationships. And so understanding that I think is critically important. Okay. You also have a very interesting section where you're talking about the value of VC-backed companies. And I'd just like to drill down into this a bit. So you say that there was a 2015 study that showed 42% of all U.S. companies that achieved an IPO or an initial public offering were VC-backed, and those companies have invested $115 billion in R&D, about 85% of the total in the economy, and account for about $4.3 trillion of market cap, which is it's big. a lot of money. Right, yeah. My question would be, wouldn't a lot of these businesses have existed anyway? It's just they would have been founded by other means. I actually think probably not in many circumstances. So the role of VC, I think, is to provide a gap filler for other financial instruments that don't actually lend themselves well to businesses that are trying to grow very heavily, that obviously are often cash flow negative for extended periods of time, and that ultimately we're trying to build to be good, very large equity businesses. So 
In the perfect world, yes, banks would do this, and you might not need to effectively provide equity to investors to do this. I think the market actually doesn't bear that out. And so I think venture actually plays a really important role. I think the five largest US-listed companies, at least, are all venture-backed companies. And again, that's not to say that these companies, their success is owing to the fact that they had venture capital, but I think the venture capital dollars play an important part of the ecosystem, which is to fund things that are otherwise unfundable by traditional funding sources. When you look at the numbers for VCs, you'd have to conclude that a lot of VCs are actually very bad at what they do. To what extent does that make it more difficult? Does it wreck the whole economics of the industry if there is too much capital throwing money at silly companies? Yeah. So you raise an important point. And so you're right. The basic way this business works is there tends to be very high dispersion between good performing venture funds and low performing funds. In fact, it's probably, it can be as much as 3,000, 4,000 basis points of difference. And it's true that the median returns in the industry are not very interesting. You'd be much better off just investing in an index or something else and having liquidity. So the negative consequence of that are correct, which is there are times where because of the availability of capital, we might overfund categories that could have been good profitable categories on their own. But then as a result of too much capital out there, you do things like drive customer acquisition costs up to the point where none of these businesses can be profitable. And so I think that is a potential hazard of the business, though the big implication for LPs and investors in this business is you can't invest in the median venture capital firm that you either get access to the firms that you believe actually can be top performing funds, or quite frankly, what we hear most LPs doing now is they just deploy the assets in other asset classes. So I think at least the good news is the LPs understand that. And over time, you know, I think the market forces will take care of it. Okay. Now, one of our previous guests was Phil Libin, who is the former CEO of Evernote, and he's founded All Turtles, which is a kind of incubator that helps build companies. And his arguments that founders very often have a particular expertise, or at least you hope they do, and they should focus on developing their product or service. What they're not very good at and have no experience of very often is actually building a company. Yet VC investors, in a way, are forcing these entrepreneurs into building companies rather than developing their products. What do you make of that critique? Obviously, Phil is a fantastic entrepreneur. I disagree with his premise in two areas. One is, I don't actually think the VCs are forcing entrepreneurs. At least what we see is we see entrepreneurs coming to us who are product technical people who want to be the CEOs for the business. And it's interesting. There's an interesting paradigm, which is you saw this for a long time on the IT side. Traditionally, though, in the healthcare and the biotech side, you did see the opposite, which is you saw kind of scientific contributors who would contribute technology but would not be the CEOs of the company. We're now starting to see, interestingly enough, a new generation of biotech entrepreneurs who look more like the IT entrepreneurs in that they want to marry their product chops with the ability to be CEO. So we like the success model of that. You get a Jeff Bezos at Amazon. You know, you get a Bill Gates in the original Microsoft. You get Thomas Watson at IBM, right? You get this marriage between the person who has the vision and who also controls the resourcing. And it's a lot of how we built the firm. The reason why we built a lot of these operating teams and why we have very CEO-focused and operating-focused GPs is... We like the idea of being able to help a product-based person who wants to be the CEO hopefully grow into that long-term model. And clearly, the success of any company is dependent on many different factors. But I mean, one is the nature of the founding team. Two is the idea itself and the product. And three is execution. When you're trying to assess what to invest in, what's the most important factor for you? It's a really good question. So the way we think about evaluating the teams at the very early stage, so let's assume we're talking about an early-stage company where there's no kind of financial evaluation we can really meaningfully do. I think of it really in two vectors, which is you're trying to assess the fitness of that team to the particular idea that they're going after, right? So what do they know that no one else knows? How did they acquire that knowledge? Why would you back this team versus five other teams who might come to you with the same business plan? We call that founder product or founder market fit. And then I think the second piece is, I hate to use the word leadership because it's such a colloquialism, but the idea is why will people follow this person? 
why will people do an irrational thing like quitting a job they already have to go follow this individual? Why will a customer who has all the risk of failure on their plate take an opportunity to deploy the product of this new company when there's plenty of other alternatives out there? Why would another venture investor downstream put money in? So we use the term storytelling to articulate it, but the ability of that individual to tell a story in a compelling way that causes people to do things that, quite frankly, might be irrational. Are these founders born or can they be made? That's the whole nurture-nature debate, isn't it? I don't know the answer, to be completely honest. uh, I'm neither a biologist nor an anthropologist, but I think what we have seen is, look, there are many people who are doing this for the first time who figure it out. And a lot of what we're trying to do as an evaluation is almost partly being a psychologist and figure out, do they have hopefully the requisite foundational skills that will enable them to be successful there? Now, one of the things that's always intrigued me is that when you become a VC of a certain scale and reputation like Andreessen Horowitz, you have this fantastic front row seat on everything that's happening across the valley. And so you do get early sight of all the trends, the technologies that are being developed, the best ideas that are coming through. So tell us, what's exciting at the moment? Where is tech going? What are the areas that really interest you and where you're likely to deploy your money in the next few years? Yeah, I would say if I look at currently kind of where we're spending a lot of time, there are a couple areas. One is we're spending a lot of time in the intersection of life sciences and computer science. And so we're incredibly excited about what the opportunity is to build new diagnostics or new drug therapies. But where you're doing that, not just with pure kind of, you know, wet lab science risk, but also kind of using engineering techniques, whether that's machine learning or other things to actually help improve the process of discovery, but also improve the likelihood that you can have more platform type companies that can actually be pan disease or cross other areas. So that's a big area we're spending a lot of time on. And how on earth do you evaluate whether the tech that these companies have actually works. Yeah. The good news is we have incredibly brilliant partners who run this fund. So Vijay Panda and Jorge Kandi, and then we just actually added another partner, Julie Yu. And they are what you would call black belts in biology, uh, coupled with black belts in computer science. And so, yes, I fully acknowledge I'm not capable of doing that evaluation, but we are obviously relying on their expertise to be able to kind of identify those things. Because you're right, it requires them understanding the scientific explanation for what's happening, but also, okay, what are the techniques from a computer science perspective that makes sense? So that's a big area we're spending a lot of time on. We've been spending a lot of time in financial services writ large these days as well. So everything from new lending models to new insurance models. We even have real estate as part of our financial services practice. So new ways to buy and sell homes that you've probably seen popping up. That's a big area of investment for us. And then the third area we're spending a lot of time on is maybe less sexy, but core enterprise infrastructure. So not just applications on the SaaS side, but also things like databases and APIs and analytics companies. So those are kind of where we're spending time. What the future holds, I'm not sure we know. The way we think about our business is almost as we need to follow talent pipelines. I mentioned this in the book, but Chris Dixon, who's one of our partners, talks about one way to think about this business is trying to see what do the nerds do on weekends. No offense to any nerds out there, myself included. But what are they tinkering with? What are the things they're playing with in their time? And what are they tinkering with? At the yeah, moment? you know, there's still pretty interesting things happening with AR and VR, notwithstanding the fact that obviously it's still developing. There's still tremendously interesting things happening in autonomy more generally. And then there's probably things that we just haven't seen yet that part of our job and what we'll look for is what's trending on GitHub repositories, what's trending on Reddit, subreddits and things of that sort that hopefully give us some insight into that. And we need to be open-minded enough to see when some really brilliant entrepreneur comes to see us with an idea. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That at least software has you know, a foundational piece in that we do the diligence and figure out, does that make for a good business? I mean, both virtual reality and autonomous cars and so on that you were talking about, expectations, I think, got ahead of themselves, didn't they? And there's fair. been a drawback on some of those expectations. Yeah. Does that mean that we're now more likely to be in the take-up phase for a lot of these? I think so. I mean, I think, look, with VR particularly, they're both incredibly capital expenditure intensive businesses. I think the acquisition by Facebook of Oculus has actually been very helpful in that respect, which is you have a company of the kind of scale and scope that Facebook does to be able to support that and I'm not a VR person myself, but, you know, what I hear from all the reviews that have come out, for example, the latest Oculus is it's miles ahead of where the early visions are. Now we need the applications to catch up to where the hardware technology is. And look, on autonomy, uh, there's a lot of work to do there, but I think we're starting to see companies, you can you can follow kind of what Waymo and other companies are doing. There's a lot of miles now being out there and people getting experience on the road. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that we're going to go to fully autonomous in the next two to three years, but I think you will see inklings of it happening in controlled areas and controlled zones in, you know, certainly a less than a five-year period. Now, one of the areas that interests me is there's a lot of talk at the moment about how big tech dominates. And you were talking earlier about how a lot of the biggest companies in America are all VC-backed big tech companies. To what extent are they now so dominant that they're stifling a lot of innovation? Has the very success of a lot of these VC companies made life more difficult for VC companies because it's now harder to find those new insurgent companies? Yeah, I don't think that's happening. Let me at least try to make the argument for it. But I've certainly heard that argument before. And in fact, I spend a decent amount of my time in D.C. talking to regulators and others. And there is certainly a view, I think, that this is stifling innovation. I think the best data points that we have to think about are if you look at inflows into the asset class, so if you look at LP commitments into the asset class, we raised about $50 billion in the U.S. last year. We're on track to kind of exceed that. Just to give you a perspective, $50 billion is about what we raised in 1999. Now, I'm not suggesting there's a parallel there, but it is in terms of the last 20 years, you know, a relative peak in terms of that. We invested almost $130 billion in the U.S. last year. And so if you look at dollars in, if you look at dollars being invested, if you look at seed formation is up actually 8x over the last 10 years, There's nothing that suggests to me that innovation is slowing down or that people are kind of worried that if I build something, it's going to be quashed by these companies. Do you buy the argument, though, that there might be more innovation if some of these companies were broken up? I don't know the answer, to be completely honest, right? I mean, look, I think it's possible. The other thing, though, I would think about, and I'm not here to defend any of those big companies, is there is an important role those companies play in the ecosystem in a couple of respects. So one is that for new startup companies, particularly for consumer-oriented startup companies, the value of things like Facebook advertising and Google advertising is actually helpful initially to bootstrap a group. Now, we all know and everyone understands that relying on those over time is not the best strategy. You have to develop your own organic methods over time. But at least in the outset, having those kind of platforms as a way to jumpstart customer acquisition actually does have value to a lot of these businesses. The other thing that's important is, right, a number of these companies do make acquisitions over time, which helps keep the ecosystem alive. So they make acquisitions on the small end where a lot of companies don't work on the venture side and they are basically effectively acquiring employees into their business, which is helpful just to start to recycle dollars. 
And then there are obviously times where they make big acquisitions that can be very successful financial outcomes, both for entrepreneurs and VCs. And so I think if you thought of a world where those acquisitions didn't exist anymore, if those companies through HSR or other antitrust regulations were prohibited from doing that, I think it could have a downstream effect on the cash conversion cycles for venture. And this is not a tomorrow problem, but over a 10, 15, 20-year period, you could imagine that could change the attractiveness of the business and therefore might have a deleterious effect on startup activity. Okay. Now, one area I'm very intrigued by also is how the Silicon Valley model, in a way, has been globalized, that you're seeing some really interesting other centers of uh, tech emerge, both in America, most obviously in China and in Europe as well. So that whereas Silicon Valley absolutely dominated VC funding a few years ago, now it's a lot more democratized, as it were. To what extent are you playing that game too? Are you looking outside your back patch now and uh, looking to invest globally? Yeah, you're absolutely right about the trend. So just to give you some perspective on it, about 20 years ago, the U.S. was about 90% of global venture capital dollars. Today, it's about 50%. It's been a massive change from a market share perspective. Of course, the market's grown very significantly, so everybody's done well commensurate with that growth. We as a firm are not doing a ton of stuff outside the U.S. today. Some of that is a function of just we still feel like we are a relatively new business. We're only about 10 years old. And so just from a focus and a conservation of resources perspective, we feel like it's better for us to perfect the business that we're in. We've told our LPs over time that, look, you know, we may very well think about international expansion, but it's probably not a super important priority for us right now. We have done a couple transactions outside the U.S. We have a couple companies in the U.K., a couple companies in Israel and Latin America. And so we're not completely averse to it. I do think China and India, though, are different markets in the sense that I think it's hard to dabble in those markets and not have really strong presence in those markets and assume that you can get the deals that you want. So while we feel like there are other markets, for example, like the UK, where from a cultural and a rule of law perspective and otherwise, if we have relationships, we feel like those are able to be executed on easier. I think it would be very hard for us to do China or India other than to the point we said, okay, we've got to go put a full team there. And at least for right now, it's just not a tactical priority for the business. Sure. How interesting is Europe in a global perspective? perspective for you, because there are supposedly about 160 unicorns in Europe now. The ecosystem does appear to be growing quite fast at the moment. That's my impression as well. I'm certainly not an expert on the market because we don't spend as much time here. But yes, my impression is you've got all the right conditions that should make it a good growing market. We've had better economic situations before, but at least you have relatively stable economic situations. You have a confluence of engineers and of executives and of product people that are available for employment. You know, traditionally, obviously, we've had free flow of people and capital across countries, which has been valuable. And I think importantly, you have a well-developed seed ecosystem. And I think to me, this is really important, which is it's very hard to imagine U.S. investors or other investors flying across the pond to actually do seed investments. And so I think for all these areas to germinate, you have to have a well-embedded seed infrastructure. And my perception is whether it's here in the UK or whether in Germany or France or other areas, we're starting to kind of see that become much more robust. And so I think that will work. I mean, look, there's big open questions, which you may know better than I, which is to what extent does free flow of people change post-Brexit and does that have an implication for particular pockets of Europe? But modulo those issues, I think the conditions are well ripe. We wish we knew. Time will tell. Has the market turned? We've seen a whole pile of companies have IPOs and direct listings this year, some of which haven't gone quite so well in the aftermarket and it's going to Lyft or Uber or Slack and so on. And then we've had the whole blow up of WeWork. Where are we in the market? Are we really now very much in a down round? Yeah. So just for full disclosure, we're shareholders in Lyft and Slack, obviously, and and then Pinterest and PagerDuty or other public companies that went this year. So look, I would describe it as kind of a tale of three cities of what I think is happening in the public markets right now. I think on the one hand, you have 
traditional enterprise software companies, which you're exactly right. If you look at Slack relative to its initial opening price, hasn't traded well. But if you look at Slack on a relative multiples basis and evaluation basis, it trades generally in line with where the high growth software comps are. And so traditional enterprise software, generally those are trading at, you know, at least on a historical basis, relatively healthy multiples. And I think that's because, look, people understand the margin structure for those businesses. We know they're going to have high gross margins. We know at scale they will have good operating margins. And not all those companies are cash flow generating today, but I think there's more line of sight into cash flow generation. The second group, though, I think, and companies like Uber are probably in this bucket, is just high cash burn businesses, period, right? And I think what the market is telling us is given that we have some macro uncertainty in the market, whether it's Brexit or whether it's obviously U.S.-China trade talks, which are causing volatility, I think it's not unreasonable to expect that you would see those stocks trade a little choppier just because people worry at some point in time if they need to tap the public markets for additional capital and if we are late cycle and we end up with major changes, will that capital be there? And so my personal view is it's hard to judge any of these companies in the first couple of months of their trading, but I think that at least explains a little bit of the jitteriness around those companies. And then maybe you won't be surprised, but I think WeWork's a little bit of a class of its own only because it's kind of a confluence of all kinds of those factors, right? So you have the high cash burn issue. You also have governance. I fully acknowledge Silicon Valley has been very out in front generally on governance, but even compared to Silicon Valley standards, right, some of the governance things that we saw in the prospectus there were even different than what people have accepted. This was not a traditional dual class stock company. It had other bells and whistles. And then, look, there is this foundational question of obviously how do you value companies that may have characteristics of technology companies, but also characteristics of vertical industries? And so it was a little bit, I think, of maybe the perfect storm of all that coming together, coupled with general market uncertainty. So I think that if you talk to most buy side folks, there's still tremendous attraction for what I would say probably first traditional software companies today. And then I think there's willingness for iconic companies in the high cash burning space for people to look at them. But I think that window is definitely a tighter window than was before. What did everyone miss with WeWork? Because with hindsight, it appears obvious that this was a very weak business model, and yet it was heading for a market with a valuation supposedly of about $47 billion. Yeah. I don't know exactly what everybody missed because, at least in theory, all that financial information should have been available to kind of investors before. So, so I imagine people, for whatever reason, either felt that there was a business model that would make sense to them or, for whatever wise, decided to move on it. The governance structures, I can imagine those probably didn't surface until the prospectus filing process came. And so it's possible that other investors were concerned about that and looked about that. It's also possible that wasn't a major consideration. And if you look also the financing of the company, most of the financing, there was obviously early stage venture capital financing. A lot of that later stage financing came predominantly from SoftBank. And so I don't know what their evaluation process is, but perhaps they got themselves comfortable that those governance structures were still appropriate. One of the things that's really been very striking over the past decade or so is a reweighting of power between public and private markets. And you have cite these very interesting statistics about Microsoft, when it went public in 1986, had a market value then of $350 million, and it's now worth around a trillion dollars. So there's been a massive increase in the value for public shareholders. Facebook, when it went public, had a valuation of about $100 billion, now worth about $540 billion. That's obviously still a pretty good return on your money if you were invested in the public market offering. But clearly, most of the value went to the private market backers earlier in the day. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, as a private market player, you're very pleased about it in some respects. But is this actually going to cause problems that value is not being created in the public markets to the extent it was? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is yes. And in fact, I've spent time in Washington testifying in front of congressional committees and the SEC on this topic, which is if I put my selfish venture capital hat on, we are a beneficiary of this. But I think this is not a good thing for the U.S., 
you have effectively this massive wealth transfer happening. Wealth is coming out of the public markets and going into private market investors. And what that means is for most ordinary investors in the stock market who are investing their retirement accounts or who are trying to invest through pensions and other stuff like that, they have very limited access to this appreciation. And I think that's a real problem. And who has an incentive to change any of the dynamics of that market? Well, if you look at at least the current SEC chairman, he's made this a big cornerstone of his administration that, you know, he recognizes that this wealth transfer is important because he cares about, obviously, you know, wealth inequality, but I think also because it's not good, I think, for the long term for kind of New York as a financial institution to have an ever-decreasing stock market. So you've got all these things happening at the same time. You've got companies staying private longer, coupled with a 50% decrease in listed stocks over time. And I don't think those are long-term good for the centrality of New York and the U.S. and the global financial system. But for that to rectify, it implies that companies are going to have to IPO a lot earlier than they are at the moment. Potentially. So I think there's two potential ways you solve this problem. One is you address the market conditions that I believe are what's causing companies to stay private longer. And some of those are structural changes in the capital markets that you know I won't bore your listeners with. But that's one way is, okay, can you reform the market structure so that it's possible to be a small cap company? Today in the US, it's a very lonely place to be a small cap company, right? You don't have research, you don't have sales and marketing, and you don't have investment banks following you. It's a hard place to be. The other way to solve it, which, you know, again, I think the SEC is also probably thinking about is, do you actually change the rules as they apply to the private markets and therefore try to democratize access to investments in the private markets? So if we can't get these companies to go private sooner, could we at least say, okay, look, there are some ways in which unaccredited, which in the U.S. basically means not wealthy investors, can actually access some of these assets in the private markets. So that would imply in a way that more institutional investors put money into VC firms, which might also be very good for you. Potentially, right. So one way to do it, yes, would be to say, okay, you liberalize the rules around pooled investment vehicles, right, and say, okay, you know, we should permit people with hopefully, of course, appropriate disclosure, but permit them to be able to do that. The other way to do it might be to change the nature of the private secondary markets. So today, the way secondary sales get done in the private markets is they are very bespoke transactions that are between very sophisticated financial buyers. You can imagine some combination of a public and a private market that might exist where you have some SEC oversight that has some market exchange elements of it and disclosure, but that also opens up some of those private markets to individual investors. I don't know which one of those is best, but that's, I think, the other way to try to address the problem. Now, the way that most people see VCs is that they're in the business of disrupting industries. What's going to disrupt the VC industry? (laughs) Um, You have this wonderful quote from Mark Andreessen that you don't want to be just the most advanced dinosaur. That's right. Being the most advanced dinosaur is not a good place to be because we know how that story ends, right? So look, I think the fundamental question for all VCs and quite frankly for any capital providers is if you believe we're going to live in a broad, low interest rate environment for you know extended periods of time and capital effectively will be relatively a commodity in most of these markets, the question ultimately for anybody in this business is, okay, what sets you apart other than capital? And we've talked about, obviously, what we've tried to do at Andreessen Horowitz, but I think we recognize that we have to do something differently. And I think the rest of the people in the VC community are thinking about that as well. So if all we are is a capital source, then look, there's always somebody who's going to have more capital and a lower cost of capital than do we. And rightly so, entrepreneurs will bypass our ecosystem and go to that ecosystem. And so by that, you mean what, crowdfunding or initial coin offerings? Yeah, I mean, initial coin offerings, I think we now know in the US, that's probably not going to be what extincts venture capital firms, given the SEC's, I think, actually appropriate actions they've taken around ICOs. So crowdfunding today, at least, has not expanded in the way that I think people thought it would. It's still a billion, maybe $2 billion industry today, so it's still relatively small. So I'm not sure what form it would take, to be completely honest, but there are plenty of sources of capital out there. And so ultimately, the question is, what do you differentiate yourself against in the market? And probably your balance sheet alone is probably no longer sufficient. So the dinosaurs have a bit more life left in them. I think so, but we need to be cautious of whatever's around the corner. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. 
We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love. <laughs>